Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Gruark, joined once again by our panel of newbies. Say hello, panel. Hello, hello. panel. Panel. Joining us today, it's David, not Greg. A keyboard. How quaint. Siobhan. Hey, everybody. Axel, for the first time in a long time. Hey, guys. And Samaria. Sup, y'all. And today we are talking about uh, episode six, The Flame of Tarvalon. This is our second watch. We're uh, going to discuss what we see now that we know this this world a bit better, that we've been through a lot of discussion about this world. Let's just, just jump right into it. We've got Young Swan and Papa Sanche. They're at their home in Tyr. And uh, Papa takes her out fishing. Uh, we see kind of a massive fortress in the background, if you notice. I did. I thought that might be Tarvalon in the distance, but when I... she heads out, she's going in the opposite direction. Yep. I was like, okay, what's that? Because <laughs> I had assumed this whole time they were rural. And, you know, Tarvalon is, well, I guess it could be rural. It could be a giant city and literally the middle of nowhere happens all the time. But, yeah, I, I, I definitely assumed they were much much farther out and then i saw that and i was like do they live in the suburbs is that tarvalon is that another city um i can tell you that no that is not tarvalon they are they are probably if she was to pull that 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 little skiff all the way to tarvalon it would probably take her about three months from where she's going <laughs> yeah they're they're in tier all the way down in the south yeah exactly so this does have a map it's the only only thing siobhan can do with her book she discovered i can look at the map (laughs) so so for the listeners i have a little free library outside the front of my house and this week uh robert jordan's the path of daggers which apparently is like the eighth book showed up in the little free library so i brought it inside and i'm gonna lock it in a safe and not read it for (laughs) probably 10 years until the series is done but yes i can see tear on the map and if you follow the river straight north you'll run into tarvalon okay so uh when while papa's taking her out fishing uh we have another one of those those uh songs with lyrics in the old tongue playing in the background so I'm going to give you the translation of those now. Uh, the, the song is saying, attend all... Att-. They have this worded very strangely, so it's very difficult. Let me try that one more time. <laughs> attend you all who comes, the keeper of the seals, noble daughter of the river, the enduring flame of Tarvalon. Mm, sounds a bit prophetic. Just a, a little bit. bit. Can I say that Baby Swan is adorable? Oh, absolutely. Oh, I love her, obviously. Yeah, yeah. She, she's so adorable. And, of course, we see her channeling to help her father untie a knot, and, and he he scolds her a little bit and says, not in sight of, of the village, but good job, good job. You couldn't even do <laughs> Scold, that. Last. Scolds her with that proud papa yeah. face. So one of the things I noticed about that is that this is, um, you assume that she's just, learned to channel because she's quite young um she's never had any kind of formal training she uses her hands there's uh, a conversation between valda where he tells and Egwene where he says the ice die don't actually need to use their hands to channel um it's just like a, a tool 
and Swan automatically uses her hands. So I wonder how much that's just extinct instinctive. If Loghain never did, but Swan no, does. he didn't. He didn't. And I I noticed that, but I went in the direction of is she like what are the what's the extent of her being self taught, and how much is her dad like bringing her back books? Is there a secret teacher some like somewhere um you know how exactly is she learning because she's very she's very intentionally learning um but i guess like i wasn't entirely like i didn't entirely teach myself to read i did in a lot of ways but you know someone had to help me even so and so you know it's like mm, and how long she's what like 10 11 12 here so I get the sense by what her dad said that they had been learning together and that he was kind of coaching her in it. Because he mentions them only doing it out in the woods and only the two of them together. I I do wonder if like you have an ability like that where using your hands to manipulate something is just so ingrained in the monkey brain that we just do that automatically. I, I I don't doubt that that's a possibility for sure. I I just do think that that they have been practicing together yeah. is clear to me. Yeah, I think he may be be you know rah rah go do your thing, Swan. But I doubt he's really you know coaching her in any significant way because you know even if he knew, he would know the male way, which has <laughs> nothing to do with the female way of doing yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, so they they return to their cottage and they find the cottage burnt down and a, a dragon's fang there right on the the what is left of the cottage for them to see. And this is the point where Papa Sanchez says, "Okay, you you need to go to Tarvalon and and you need to get out of here." And she pulls off. I have this headcanon that is never addressed in the show that as she gains influence in the tower she's able to go back and help her father to a certain degree because i mean he just lost everything lost his boat lost his house lost his kid i know we talked about this the first time around but i really like the second time i watched this it was just smacked me in the face why is he not going with her it makes zero sense to me to have him stay there you know i thought the same thing well, what I thought it was like, there's no way my dad would let me go by myself. He'd at least see me and drop me off before, like, <laughs> making sure, like, making sure I'm settled before going back home. Um, so I was like, I wonder if they, if like, is he staying, like, for her safety more so than his? Like, if he goes with her, is there is there a reason why that's worse than sending her off alone? Either. At Tarvalon or in their village. Maybe if he's there, the rest of the village won't realize she's left right away and it gives her some time. Mm, That's yeah. a possibility. The the one thing I wrestled with and, and the only thing I could come up with is this uh sense that he has something in his past related to the White Tower and Aes Sedai that would be a detriment to her and her journey. So just to give a little political background um tear actually has a prohibition on channeling um i said i are allowed in tier but they are not allowed to channel 
um, channeling is is absolutely forbidden. Um, and and you know, so I said I there definitely looked at kind of askance. Um, and so coming from that culture, I can see why maybe he would be like, okay, you're one of these and you need to go, but I can't bring myself to go with you kind of thing. Got it. That's kind of where I'm okay. seeing it coming from. That would make sense. Yeah, it does. And uh, moving on to the opening scene, uh, we're in the Hall of the Tower. And, <clears throat> all right, I half-asked this last time. <laughs> Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentle thems, people of all gender expressions, make some noise. Hailing from a fishing village in the fingers of the dragon, fast as a silver pike, fierce as a lionfish, standing at 5'8 and weighing none of your goddamn business. The watcher of the seals, the flame of Tarvalon, the emerald in seat, old fish guts herself. Swan Sanche! <laughs> Give it my best Beyonce go, but not really, because I'm in a closet. Uh, yeah, so we get Swan. Very regal. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we immediately see the, the difference between how she came to Darvalon and how she is now. It's, it's one hell of a glow up. And then we have uh, the tower guard bringing in Loghain. Swan has him unchained because she's like, he can't even channel. Why is he chained up? And Loghain starts monologuing as, as he is wont to do and says, uh, you know, the Aes Sedai have lost power the further one gets from Tarvalon. You know, a hundred years ago, if, if somebody tried to rile up people against the White Tower, they would have been hung in the town square. And it took me less than a year to, br to bring an army to your door. He's trying to provoke her. DW brought up the death by cop theory, and I definitely see what's I going on there. I didn't notice, or rather, I read it differently the first go-round, where, like, he's trying to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with her, like, as in, like, I may be gentle, but that doesn't mean I'm powerless. And then when she hands down her judgment, he's like, oh, hell no, that's awful. Versus this time, I'm like, oh, he knows what's coming for him, absolutely. And so, like, he's intentionally antagonizing her because he's gambling that she will react the same way the Aes Sedai who gentled him did, which is very immediate and out of, you know, a very emotional, angry, grieve response. And, you know, he gambles wrong. And then he's like, oh, hell no, oh, no, please kill me. Because <laughs> he was trying to get killed in the first place. And, you know, that, that what she said is the a fate worse than death for him. I don't I don't get the sense that he's at the point where he needs to he feels like he wants to die. And it just he doesn't seem like the person that's ready to go to that suicide death by cop level here. And I don't know. I'm not sure what the motivation would be for manipulation by asking for death, but it just I still don't get that sense from him yet. You think Martin he was challenging him? her? Something like that, yeah. I mean, the 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 motivation for suicide is he's been cut off from the source. I mean, oh, sure, yeah. And we've we've they've established that that's just a terrible feeling. I still don't didn't see that in his acting and his face in that scene. Cuz I was kind of looking for it this time around. So, what do we think about uh what it was that he said? 
um, that the Aes Sedai have lost their power the further one gets from Tarvalon, and, and they've lost this power within the last hundred years. Do you think there's any truth to that statement, or is he just trying to get her goat? Oh, no, it's totally true. Um, and she confirms it's true later. Um, gosh, I think I'm getting my fandoms mixed up. <laughs> I am. I'm thinking of Shadow and Bone, actually. Um, and there's this line in Shadow and Bone where the general's like, or the commanding officer or whatever he is, I don't know his rank. He's like, once upon a time, you know, Grisha, who I guess would be Aes Sedai in this world, Grisha, you know, were worth, you know 20 of my men and then they were worth 10 and now they're worth like five and i think that's exactly what Logain is saying here like mm. once upon a time you guys were all powerful and the world's catching up to you and so eventually we're going to render you useless or as close to useless as we can get and i'm still not sure like exactly where the Aes Sedai, the amerlin seat fits into like world powers mm -hmm. And so, like, are you a country? Are you a nation state? Are you, like, independent but extremely influential? Like, what's going on here? So I, I can answer that one for you. They, they, it's really set up very similar to how uh, the Catholic Church is set up. Okay. Um, the, the island of Tarvalon is its own nation state. And uh, they, they control nothing beyond the island itself, but all of the other countries in in the westlands pretty much kind of pay tribute to them and pay taxes or tithing of some sort to the Aes Sedai and that's kind of where they how they keep their power and how they keep their wealth is is just these donations from most of the other countries basically they're a mafia racket they get protection money from all the other countries that does make perfect sense okay so one assumes they're not getting money from tier <laughs> no, no. Uh, that's the funny thing is uh even places like tier do still pay a type of tax or gift to stay out of Marvel our business on. fee because yeah, yeah presumably like that, yeah. even if even if it's illegal there they're not going to care if they're an invading force right i don't and, care about yeah. your laws if i'm invading you yeah so i mean and, i get the sense that that statement is more about the status of politics more so than their actual ability to control things via channeling um uh, and on the basis of that what we got in two rivers was along the same lines of the i said i don't go out and do things they just pull the strings from the tower and i think in in contemporary times they've just kind of pulled themselves back to the tower and and Megan's kind of an example of that too. She wants to just deal with things from a tower sense, and they kind of frown on Moraine being out in the world and doing whatever Moraine's doing. So I think that they've pulled in and they've kind of figured out that they've got this safe place, and their their influence on the outer edges of the countryside is is waning politically because they're just not out there as much anymore. That, that would explain how white cloaks are able to operate right on their doorstep. Like, they were assaulting the Tuath on just before they hit the bridge that takes them into the city. So that's pretty nervy. Moving on, uh, uh, Loghain is escorted out of the hall after his his uh, attempt of, of suicide by cop. And... Uh, 
Swan asks about it, and Leandrin gets very emotional and says, you weren't there, you didn't see what he did to our sister. And for all of Leandrin's scheming and and seeming hatred for the other Aes Sedai around her, you could tell that she was still scandalized by the fact that he had killed a sister, and, and she took that personally. Um, for, for all of her scheming, they're still her sisters, or at least when it matters for a good speech. Well, it's like that, you know, me against my mother, me and my brother against my cousin. I was say the same mm-hmm. thing. You know, like, <laughs> I can beat up my sisters, but don't anybody else try it. Yeah. And they do grow up together. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're being um, brought in as a novice at a young age, you spend a lot of time with these people. I was really impressed by the expressions on the faces when... Alana backs Leandrin up. Everybody looks and looks around. Morgane even looks around like she's surprised. And then Morgane backs her up and all the blues go. Oh, the blues, <laughs> the blues are shook. <laughs> what is going on? Uh, I mean, Megan says that it's scandalous later in, in the meeting with Moraine. It's like, oh, uh, a green back to red. What is this world coming to? <laughs> yeah. Megan was like, I got to shut this shit down now. You got to stay home. No more roaming and making friends. Don't do that. <laughs> so Leandrin, it turns out, was the one in command after Karene died. And so she is the one who takes the fault. But her punishment is never doled out for us to see, unfortunately. And Leandrin then uses that moment to uh, monologue and bring up Nynaeve and make a big anti-Moraine speech about what, so what's she been up to all the time out there anyway? Um, What are we thinking of this whole scene now? I was just confused why everyone, like, decided to stop caring about Leandrin all of a sudden because she brought up Moraine. Because it almost seems like there wasn't a punishment for Leandrin, and it was the blame was just shifted to Moraine somehow. But I suppose she could have been punished in the background also without us seeing it. But yeah, I think that her punishment just happened off screen at some point. I, I did wonder how often they have to put on this little theater piece of you know hating each other. Moraine and Swan have to act this out whenever. Whenever somebody brings attention to Moraine or when somebody, you know, mentions that Swan used to be a blue, they have to have this little performance in front of everybody. Or especially their mission. Yeah. Because, like, they they really have to deflect when anything related to the mission comes up. One of the things I, I wondered was why Swan felt she had to be so harsh. But... Also, Moraine didn't try to deflect at all. She didn't give her one of those it's technically true stories. Um, she just flat out said, I can't. Yeah, is, I caught that too. Where I was like, oh, maybe this is one of those things where you like it's it's been going on for so long that to the outsider like there doesn't need to be an explanation of what's going on it's like oh they're picking up you know where they left off two years ago like going at each other and so maybe to us it's like oh why is swan like harping on moraine like so hard like what what did she do but everybody else knows what moraine did or they think they know what moraine did 
I wonder if the two of them used the oath rod to the effect of saying, we are going to take an oath not to speak of this mission to anyone. Presumably the Amarillo seat might have access to the oath rod for use in uh, dark corners without anybody knowing about it. And then using it for that purpose would actually cause Moraine to physically not be able to say anything about it. Maybe, but later on she's like, well, maybe we should, we should tell other people. And Swan's like, no. So Madeline actually brought this up while we were watching this. Um, Yeah. She was like, well, she just said she can't. Does that mean that there's an oath there? Because otherwise she just would say she won't and blah, blah, blah. And we were talking about it. And I mean, it is possible that they could have, you know, snuck the oath rod out and, and swore an oath on it. But I personally don't think that's what's going on here. I because um, she did tell the story of of Guitar Moroso to all the kids, and she also must have told Lan at some point because it's established that she meets Lan in the Borderlands after she's already started her yeah. quest. So, so at least a couple people she has told. Presumably, it could be a very carefully worded oath. Who knows? But yeah. Um, my thought is the pact that they swore to each other and the love they have for each other to Moraine is just as, as binding as anything said on the oath rod. And that's why she says, I cannot say while other people are in the room, the whole thing with kind of Leandrin getting forgotten about i think that was leandrin's whole plan that's why she like pointed oh hey by the way moraine's right here like you know she she knows about the the supposed hatred between the two of them so she just knows hey if i just point out that the person you really hates right next to me let me, poke, let me poke that bear for yeah, a moment. Yeah, yeah, let me just poke <laughs> While that. While I and run then, away this way. <laughs> just gonna poke that and shuffle off to the side here, and then you'll forget all about me. So, of course, they have to put on their theater, or else it's gonna get suspicious, and yeah. Um, so then, uh, as they after they leave, uh, Alana says, apologize while you can. And uh, Moraine's like, oh, to, to that, that woman, no. Hell no. <laughs> And uh, they run into Leandrin, who says, uh, oh, I suppose you want me to thank you for standing up for me. Well, I'm not going to thank you, because I know you all too well, old friend. And I know that you're only doing it for yourself. Leandrin really comes across as, as somebody who got dumped. <laughs> like... Yes. Oh, my gosh. He totally does. People have said that. And I I was like, I don't really see it. But this time around, I really saw it. And, and I'm... I'm starting to get on the train that maybe uh, Leandrin and Moraine had a had a thing at some point. Oh yeah, I was very close to God. I was like, "There's got to be some some thick of this." I definitely get the sense that they were novices at the same general time. They they were definitely uh, the the three of them, Swan, Leandrin, and and Moraine were novices at the same time. They knew each other. They have history. Yes, Leandrin's feelings got hurt. <laughs> And I noticed when she said, I know you all too well, old friend, uh, Moraine looks like she kind of has some tears in her, in her eyes right then. Mm. That, that was the part that made me think, okay, maybe there actually was a relationship happening here at, at some point in time. Yeah, like, 
maybe they were best friends and then they went to high school and someone dumped the other for somebody else. That happens <laughs> all the time. There's a reason why it's a trope. The whole the whole way that Leandrin always travels with her pack too. Like yeah. every conversation she's got, you know, her her mean girls club backing her up. It suddenly actually reminds me of Valda. Mm, that's interesting. That's an interesting observation. The way that Valda always wants the power balance in his direction and always has his backup at the ready and yeah. You know your your little friendship army thing, Samaria, it clicks in my head. I wonder if the three of them were all friends and they were all going to go to the blue Aja as uh accepted. And then you get this uh that trope of Oh, we're gonna go to the same college, boyfriend, girlfriend, and and they're in high school, and then all of a sudden one of them picks one across the country, and they're the traitor, and maybe Leandrin chose red, and all of them were gonna go to blue, and that was the falling out. I mean, I'd believe it. I've always heard three is the worst number for friends. It's kind of suggested that Leandrin has those tendencies towards the blue Aja with the spy network and the... She tries. She does her best. <laughs> Bless her heart. I could see that happening. <laughs> yeah, I, the, my only problem with that is could you honestly see Leandrin as a blue? Mm, no. no, she plays every card she has <laughs> the first chance. She needs attention too much. Yeah. Yeah, you can read everything right on her face. She's She's not... Poker face enough to be a blue, I don't think. Oh, yeah. I mean, she could be kidding herself <laughs> up to that point, right? And then ultimately makes the right decision of, yep, I'm a red going this way. Sorry, guys. One one of the things that, that struck me about the dynamic with Leandra and her Mean Girls Club is that it's it's very much like if you have people who are in this socially incestuous situation, everything gets blown out of proportion because it's... It's your whole life. Like, I've known this in, in, uh, I've seen this happen in like communes, um, where I'm, I have in my head one specific example of a pagan commune where everybody lived in this one apartment building. They all worked in a business that they ran together. They studied together. They practiced the religion together. They were all friends. They started dating each other. And so, like, every minor irritation, every minor conflict, gets blown into this huge thing because you have no sense of perspective. Like you have no um, objectivity. It's these the only people in your life. And so every minor thing is like the end of the friggin' world. And I wonder if there's some of that in the tower politics, just making every little conflict so much more important because you live with these people, you work with these people, you fight side by side with them. If you're leaving the tower at all, it's for, um, you need to trust these people to have your back. And so everything becomes a big honking deal. <laughs> like, you know. I mean, that's just private school. Yeah. <laughs> Similar <laughs> dynamic, right? Well, and even even within their little group of reds, right, the, it would be that way. And you don't have the warder dynamic to kind of level you out and pull you out of the group like you do in the other spaces because the orders kind of go off into their own space and and trade together and have their own quarters and things so they're not necessarily a part of your little cabal 
or the Reds don't have that because they don't have a warder. They have their own room. They have their own assume when assume section in the tower. They all camp together when they're out on the road. They work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's nothing from the outside to like balance that out in any way. Like even with your warder, like you two are bonded. And so in a lot of ways, you are the same person, but your water has his own, like, sphere as well. And so, like, your water is going to go places where you're not going to go. Your water can go places where you can't go. Your water has his own friends, his own background versus reds where, like, you're red and that's it. And so, yeah, you all, you know, fellow Reds are also bringing in their own thing. But once you're in, it's intensely insular in a way I don't see with greens or blues. Like, I'm not sure what the other Ajas got going on, but the other Ajas don't, also don't seem to roam the way Reds do. And so, yeah. And presumably the blues must do some roaming too, being, you know, the spies and the scouts and stuff. Yeah. Megan was like, you you know, it's my turn to go out and see what's going on. So you stay home and rest. Be happy. Yeah. Yeah, I would say probably like the the browns, the whites, and the yellows tend to stay closer to the tower. Um, they're more of the, the academic and medical fields. And then the, the other Ajahs tend to go more afield. Um, you know, grays the battle especially. Ajah, the, yeah, the, yeah, greens, grays, blues. Blues, you don't know they're there. <laughs> well, except for the fact that they're dressed all in blue. <laughs> I don't know whether it's that. Unless you wear the flashy, flashy dress that yeah. Moraine does. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I get the feeling when Moraine wears that flashy dress, she knows she's wearing that flashy dress and she's doing it for a reason. Yeah, her entire bearing changed the way she was walking, like how she like moved, how she gestured. Like it was just completely different than Moraine on the road. Well, you've mentioned before that in the first part of the first book, Moraine actually stays undercover and is introduced differently by Lan. So. She does. She does play the undercover part. We just didn't see it in the the TV show. Yeah, and and that would have been really confusing for the the watching people to have to learn three different names for these characters right <laughs> off the bat. So yeah, maybe later. You got you got to bring in the uninitiated too. So then we move on. We're on the streets of Tarvalon. Uh, Moraine is sitting there having tea, very uh, Kermit the Frog like. We see uh, Nynaeve and Loyal leave their room on a balcony across the way, and then uh, Lan comes in and, and gives her the nod and leads leads her over to Rand and Matt at the blessing. Uh, Rand is surprised by Moraine, um, and and Lan makes a funny after he realizes that <laughs> Rand doesn't address him at all. <laughs> And we realize Matt is very ill, and Lan moves towards him. Rand pulls out his sword, and, and Lan, well, just, just just laughs, really. Oh, sweet summer child. That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> he does try. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, that, that good, good sheep herder try, yeah. Uh, Matt swipes at Moraine with the dagger, and uh, she immediately binds him and the dagger in air and realizes that the stupid boy is an incredibly stupid boy. Um, she does some channeling and uh, kind of rips Mashadar out of Matt and forces it back into the dagger and then hands it to Lan. 
I hadn't realized on the first watch of that that she actually sends a weave into Matt's mouth to get it before she starts pulling the black out. She actually, you see the, the weave go to his mouth and then go down and grab the Mashadar and drag it out by force. My wife kind of noticed as the Mashadar gets pulled out on her weave that her weave moves from a smooth, like, round motion to a more jagged line. Yeah, it's fighting. And I'm, yeah. I'm thinking now that the Mashadar is trying to escape from that weave and, like, grasp anybody in the room that it possibly can. Oh, and, yeah. and the the weave is struggling to keep it going the direction that Moraine's trying to pull it. And it looks like it tired her out, too. Like, the next scene where she's standing, kind of oh, looking yeah. over oh, yeah. the balcony. Oh, she's catching she's, her she's breath. She's winded, for sure. <laughs> yeah. That was a fight. Tired Lan out, too. I don't know if you noticed that, but I don't think his grunting was struggling against Matt. I think his grunting was him struggling against the feeling of Machadar struggling against uh, Moraine. Ah, good oh, catch. That is a good catch, because I was like, damn, Matt was fighting the good fight. <laughs> he could hold Matt down all day <laughs> with no problem. Machadar or not. I was thinking the, that it was indicating that maybe Machadar was giving Matt, like, you super know, super strength, That's what I was strength thinking too. or something, but... I no, I like the idea that it was because Moraine was was dealing with Masha Dar and he was feeling that and that's where the grunt came from. I do like that a lot. Had canning accepted. Yes. <laughs> uh so then as we said, Moraine has a breather out on the balcony and Rand Rand says thanks. Um and then he's he's like, Matt's not the dragon, right? It, it was all the Shadow City. And, I love how and... he's pushing the spy for information. <laughs> <laughs> Subtle Rand. Subtle. Yeah. <laughs> And she said, well, it, it probably was all the dagger, but he's also stronger than he should be because that dagger should have killed him le weeks ago, but it was feeding off some, some kind of strength. So why didn't you go ahead and, and babysit him some more there for me? Um, <laughs> what, what do we think that that strength might be? Well, we know he's Tavirin, so we know he's important. I think, like, it's easy to read Matt as kind of like the weakest link of the bunch for many reasons, but... He's had the hardest time of it, and he, and presumably from very young. I'm not one of those people who believes, like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger because people die from that all the time. People are maimed in many kind of ways that they never recover from for life. And for Matt, I think that is true, but I also think Matt's like, I'm not going to give people the satisfaction of doing me in. I'm going to do me in. Like, he seems to be that kind of person, and that lends itself to like a very distinct kind of emotional strength and resilience and like i can see that dagger and the darkness like running into him and being like huh i got you ha <laughs> that's easy and then it, you know matt's like this <laughs> i've like i've had worse you're not my dad <laughs> <So>. <laughs> i i think we're seeing the the first itchings of the the themes of good versus bad here and that the will of the heart and soul can overcome those evil influences. And I think they're just setting up the fact that Matt's soulful heart is ridiculously powerful. That that, that core that he has, which we see with when he's dealing with children, is the power that he has. And that it can overcome those kind of forces. So basically it's kind of... Uh... Mashadar shows up and is all like, I'm going to make you miserable. And he's like, 
Good luck. You <laughs> <laughs> have to do better than that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it less of a physical, magical type thing and more of a emotional, spiritual type uh, theme. The 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 fact that he survived this long means that there's some rod of steel, heart of gold in there somewhere that that yep. just can't can't be beaten down. Can't be yet. broken. He's very kind. He is. And that the kind of kindness Matt has is hard won. Like you're not necessarily born with it. You have to intentionally choose it over and over and over again. So And practice it. Like if Matt was incredibly selfish, I think people around him would probably understand. They would be like, Yeah, I get that. You have nothing. You you need to be selfish with whatever you have. And and, and let he's it be. not. Yeah. And he's not yeah, that that's like you said, that's that's hard won. That that would be that was a choice. And then uh Nynaeve and Loyal return and uh Moraine shows great respect to Loyal. She and, and Nynaeve have, have a little face off and finally she just says, uh look, you're a whiz dumb, don't be a whiz idiot. <laughs> That was, uh, I, my my joke on that one failed the last time around, so I had to rewrite it. I'm hoping that one's back. I can understand the choices that the others made around hiding Matt from Moraine when they thought he could channel, because they have seen, uh, like, Nynaeve saw Loghain gentled. Rand got the story about Tom's nephew. They're terrified for Matt. But I got the impression from... Moraine, when she was talking to Rand especially, she was saying, I would have done that for any of you. Like, after all we've been through, you still don't trust me. She seemed to be very upset by that. Well, we have established that Moraine has a uh, pompous, cocky attitude towards a lot of things. And I think that might have been that showing through that these guys would just follow her blindly because she's her. Not a woman who hears no very often. I mean, she's a she's this professional spy. She's like the CIA, so it's like a personal failing almost on her part, a professional failing. And so it's like all this time, and you still don't trust me, even though I got you where you needed to go. I told you so. Everything that I keep saying like is going to happen happens, and yet <laughs> they're hard headed though. That's not her fault. I wonder if she's ever going to figure out. The only reason Nynaeve's still along for the ride is because of Lan. <laughs> I mean, you say that, but Nynaeve, I don't think it's true because Nynaeve, as much as she fights against things, like she always shows up. She shows up mad, but she shows up. Whatever she tells herself to keep herself angry and self-righteous, like, I guess that helps with the cognitive dissonance because I'm like, Nynaeve, you're still showing up. You're still doing ultimately what Moraine told, like, tells you to do. So what's up? So we move on, and we're in the tower baths. We got uh, Mygen and Moraine meeting, uh, essentially in a Russian steam bath, like a couple of mobsters. And and Mygon, you know, pretty much mentions it, like really the steam baths. And Moraine's like, "Hey, I've been on the road for two years. Let me let me just have this, all right." The the last thing I had was a friggin' wash tub with land in it. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> let me have this. Um, and Mygon is saying that uh, Swan is weak. She's she's having a hard time holding on to the seat. And she says a green spoke for, for a red. There are Aiel on this side of the spine of the world. There are ships off the west coast. 
There are trollops in the two bloody rivers. Yeah, there are ships off the West Coast. Uh, an Aes Sedai sank the Terran ferry. My <clears throat> God <laughs> <laughs> goes on to say, hate her all you want. Swan was once a blue and we owe her our protection. And this time that line really hit me hard because I realized my gun is the head of the blue Aja. She's like the director of the CIA. And she doesn't know. Yeah, that's scary, ain't it? Tells me that uh, she should not be leading the blues. Moraine probably should be leading the blues. Well, but, on the uh, other hand, like both Moraine and Swan were uh, like, like Swan was blue too. And presumably she was the best blue, which is how she got to be promoted to be the, you know, to the seat. So if the two best spies in the net, you know, in the organization can't keep a secret from their boss, then they wouldn't be the <laughs> two fair. best spies. That's fair enough. Flawless logic. I was going to say, you don't, you don't put your best field agent behind a desk and put him in charge. That, that never works out well. Swan may not have been the best field agent, but very likely she was the best management agent, like best at doing it at home. She knows the, she knows the theory and the practice. She can keep it like, she should be better at keeping secrets from the rest of the Aes Sedai than anybody. And especially given the internal politing that is implied is going on within the Aes Sedai over who gets to be leader. I get leader. the sense that she's not the seat because she was good at being blue. I think she's the seat because she was good at politics and the internal workings of the tower and her channeling ability in general, those sorts of things, not necessarily the spy portion of it. Of course, they do go together, the spying and the politics. But That, that was kind of what I was, was going to say. Like, I would not be at all surprised that Blues tend to be to get the seat if there is a lot of internal politics going on. Because yeah. they're the ones that should be able to find shit out. You know, they they have the um, they know what's going on with the other senior members of the Aes Sedai, so they can <laughs> blackmail them. I can give you a little background here. As far as a uh, number of Amerlins, blues have had more Amerlins than any other Aja for obvious reasons. Oh, shocker. Uh, reds have had fewer than any other Aja, also for probably obvious reasons. How important is warder support for uh, a candidate for the seat? Like, does that take into account at all? No, no, no. Uh, warders back up their Sedai. In, in all things, the, the warders would never say anything different than there's a die. Okay. And, and a, another thing, we've talked about this before, um, Swan is essentially uh, Pope John Paul II. Part of the reason she was elected is because, and, and why she's so young in the seat, is because they had three rather elderly Amerlins in a row die within like a decade and and they finally decided, you know what, we need somebody who's going to stay in the seat for a while. And that's when when uh, they were able to get Swan in because she was younger and would therefore actually be in the seat for a longer period of time and actually be able to get some things done. Continuity is important. Interesting. Axel, I'm hoping you might have some interesting insights into the, the that whole papal history. Yeah, I mean, I remember the I remember the Pope's dying. And Paul being elected, and and again, I guess actually there's probably a fair bit of similarity because papal elections are generally full of politics and sneaking and, and skullduggery and uh, and such like. Especially back when they had real world power, you know, back in the Renaissance kind of era. Yeah, which is kind of what I I compare the the Aes Sedai to is kind of the Renaissance era 
Catholic Church, where the Pope really has the most power out of anybody, even though he doesn't actually preside over any any lands himself. Um, so then uh, Megan goes on to tell Moraine, uh, I'm going to pull you in. I'm going to put you on desk duty. Um, you're, you're home now. Just Just be at home. And that comes in stark contrast to what she was saying about home in the previous episode. Uh, this, the, the tower is the furthest thing from home in her mind. Um, and then she picks up her towel and a yellow flower falls out. And uh, Maigen says, more secrets? Do we pick up anything from that? What was the flower? It was the message from the yellows that they found oh, uh, mm -hmm. Perrin and... Yeah, I, didn't catch I that was the first stumped time by I got that. it this time. Yeah, because the next shot we see a yellow leading moraine, and it's full of those yellow flowers whose name escapes me at present time. I loved the fact that the yellows building was full of plants. I know. Like, she walks like past a table that's covered in plants, and I'm like, so they do use you know wisdom knowledge as well in their healing. I thought well, that was sure, really like, cool. You know, if you're from a small town like the Two Rivers and you were a wisdom or an apprentice and you got pulled in, that probably is a very natural like transition for you. And presumably the magic always comes at a cost, right? Like we see it from Moraine getting drained when she's healing the horses and the other Aes Sedai being drained when they're they're shielding low gain. It it comes at a physical, at least a mental toll to the person channeling. There may be some other toll that's paid. So if you have a physical, worldly assistance to that healing to go along with the magic, presumably that, one, makes it easier on you, and two, gives you the best results. Holistic healing. Like, my doctor gives me Prozac and also tells me to go outside. So, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Healing is one of the things that one can do while channeling that that really just takes a lot of energy. And channeling over time does physically it, it does physically exhaust you. It, it's both a mental and a physical exertion, and that comes with um, both the amount you're channeling and the the fine detail of the channeling and healing is, is of course very, very fine detail. Um, and generally also large amounts of the power as well. So it, it's very draining. And so I could see them saying, you know what? Yeah, that's a pretty bad paper cut, but, uh, here, here's a, here's a poultice and a bandaid. You know, I'm, I'm not draining myself just to heal your paper cut. Kind of They'll thing. use the magic to stop the bleeding and, seal up the wounds then they slap some aloe on it for the scarring because <laughs> so then uh um eggy asks about the dumbass twins uh, have, <laughs> have you seen the dumbass twins and moraine says uh she has people looking and she has it on good authority that they're okay which are all absolute truths of course they are and then uh, Moraine says, so uh, tell me tell me about these white cloaks. And uh, Eggie gives her the rings from that Valda had and claims that she killed Valda, but we know that, that she had bad aim. And Moraine says that they'll heal him like it never happened. And, and Egwene responds to that, well, on the outside anyway. And I, I think Egwene is a lot more 
in tune in this scene than than Moraine is. Well, also, Egwene knows his secret. Like, he has confessed to her. I mean, I would say even without that secret, having somebody carve on your back with a knife for a while is is still going to leave some mental scars, even if the physical scars go away. So, Iggy tells Moraine about Perrin and his eyes turning all golden. No joke. (laughs) (laughs) And then the wolves... <laughs> that lad's better than the original. Yeah. It's the pout that um, made it. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then a bunch of wolves come by and say a cab. And uh, Moraine says, Yeah, don't tell anyone about that because that's kind of sus. And I really don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah, we do on not with want the Reds thing. to know about that trick. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that that sounds like something people don't like need to hear. Like of all the not I said I gifts you can get, that seems to be a very unfun one. <laughs> so Well, and would they I I really know what to do with it, right? Cuz if it's not channeling in a male, what is right. it and how do yeah, we deal like, with it? Yeah, we know it? they're not above killing. No. Yeah. Well, what happens if you try to gentle somebody who can't channel? Uh, nothing. Or they turn right? into a vegetable, unfortunately. Seems like the most likely instance. That That's kind of where I'm coming from. Maybe they turn into a vegetable or something. That would be terrifying. So, moving on, uh, we are now in Moraine's chambers. And uh, Lan comes rushing in. He's concerned about the bond being masked. And he's like, hey, what, 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 what? My GPS stopped working. What, what's <laughs> no going knocking, on? no nothing. He just goes stormed into the room. My first reaction was, you don't even knock. And then I kind of went, well, you know, we've seen them take a bath together. So it's not like he's going to see anything that he hasn't seen before. Well, I think he knows exactly what's happening. Like, I'm sure that there's only only a few reasons why you masked the bond. And, and given the circumstances, Lan knows exactly what's going on. Well, I don't know that he necessarily knows the bond was being masked. He just knew that the that he could no longer feel the bond. So I think he came rushing into the room because he that was the last place where he felt her and was like, okay, I don't feel her anymore. What the hell's going on? Into the room. And then he sees her standing there just fine. He's like, oh, you masked it. Why did you mask it and not tell me, you know? And Stepan just, just died very violently. And so... You know, I can understand him being on edge right now. So Lan then figures out what's up, and he says, uh, okay, I'll stand watch outside the door. You go have fun. Tell her I said Use hi. protection. <laughs> but be, ba- be back by uh, by sunrise, yeah. child. <laughs> that, is, that is your uh, curfew. And she says, is that a request? Does that sound like a request? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so then Moraine walks over to, uh, her, her little Turangri all hanging on the wall there and she opens it up and, and she hears, you see a faded sign at the side of the road? It says 15 miles to the love Turangri. <laughs> Check. <laughs> so, uh, she hops into Turangri all as big as a whale and, and she goes and sets sail. <laughs> It looks like it could. I'm sure uh, if it came off its moorings and landed in the river, it probably would set sail. <laughs> she and Swan meet up, and they're like, Tin Roof, rested. 
Y'all are just falling flat. <laughs> <on my head. laughs> Somebody out there is laughing their ass off right now. So we get they get together and we realize that their relationship is not the contentious one that everybody seems to think that it is. And we get some more lyrics happening in the background in the old tongue. And uh, the lyrics translate to the pillar, the prodigy, nothing but the seat. No life, no love of one's own, nothing but the seat. That's sad. It makes you wonder why anyone would want to be in the seat. I mean, you know, there's something to be said about absolute power. I can't say. Well, yeah, I guess if you like that more than people. I mean, you know, one could say there have been several popes who didn't necessarily uh, live up to the, the popiness. Yeah, like that's a question. Is, is that... If, is that a rule that are is... one night stands okay? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and I mean, is it is it a matter of it's a thing you're not so clearly they don't have to take an oath to that effect? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. so it, it, since they don't have to take an oath and they could be made to take an oath, that could be a ritual that implies that one of those things that yeah technically that's what you swear but no but nobody is really expected to live up it's, to it's that not being enforced yeah. yeah and if you want to have a bit on the side it's okay as long as it doesn't interfere with your duties yeah exactly exactly don't it's what you're seen to do not what you're actually doing that matters right. like if um the isodai wanted to ensure that the amelin seat abide abided by that rule then part of becoming the Amelin seat would be to swear an oath to abide by it, and then they wouldn't be able to have a then she wouldn't be able to have a relationship with anybody. Um, so either Swan ignored that requirement, or that requirement doesn't exist. Yeah, I I I, I don't think the requirement exists because it it's you know if. It feels like if that requirement existed, it would re it exist for all Aes Sedai, not just the Amerlin. And I think it's more of a statement of this is the most important job in the world. You are not going to have time for anything but your job. Yeah. And, it, and I think, too, the idea that you can't have favorites within the tower. Yeah. So if you have, you know, a one-off with some guy or woman that you meet while you're i don't know however however you meet people when you're when, you, when you're a nice to die you either have a bias towards them or they have something on you one way or another you're gonna have a problem later yeah you can't you can't have a favorite within the tower but anything outside it's not technically illegal but you know given your role it's highly unlikely you're yeah gonna ever have the opportunity understood is that you're not supposed to have like a spouse or significant other or any of that sort because it takes away from your commitment to the tower to being an Aes Sedai. Like it's not so much an oath of celibacy so much as it's an oath of like your marriage is to to the tower. And so the role has to be your priority which in a way that doesn't happen if you have your own family. Yeah, but you're you like you're not supposed, especially as a novice. Like you're supposed to be in school. Don't worry about them boys. Worry about them books. Um, Don't have pets. <laughs> yeah. 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 
Right. And maybe the pet thing is like a, a test of, you know, your ability to not have favorites. Yeah, not form those attachments. Yeah, yeah but yeah. like you can have a lack of attachments and still like have fun. It's just mm-hmm. that understanding that there's there's that's all it can be. Well, there's something that comes up in my head. We have seen that uh, Aes Sedai and their warders are, at least we presume, fairly often in some kind of a sexual relationship as well. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, it, it seems to me like saying Aes Sedai cannot be in relationships except with their warders, just that also seems kind of weird. Seems like, you know? oh, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to uh, Siobhan's question about why anyone would want to be in the seat, I wonder if Sawan is only there because of their mission. Because we know that the um, vision happened while they were still novices or accepted. They hadn't chosen their Aja yet. Yeah. Um, so she's definitely not the uh, Amerlin at that point. I wonder if that path was chosen and taken because of their mission and it allowed her a better position to carry it out and if she would have ended up in that place had that not happened to her we have two very powerful and very effective blues working towards a goal which is get one or the other of them in the seat so that they can make sure this mission happens I wanted you to think about what you were just saying there about getting one or the other into the seat. Um, remember where Swan comes from, and then remember Moraine's history, what we know of it. She is a lady from a fallen house. It almost seems like Moraine would have been the more obvious choice. Yeah. Except we don't know what the circumstances behind the fall of that house were, because remember we pointed out how you know everyone kind of gasps when Sawan mentions her last name in the the tower hall. So it's it's very possible that Sawan was the only choice in that case because of that history, like scandal. Yeah, and. Just to bring that up again, when people ask, acted scandalized when she brought up that name, that's there are two reasons for that. One is the name itself. There's there's some history attached to that name. Um, and the other is using an Aes Sedai's name instead of the honoris, honorific Sedai. Um, once, once you are part of the tower, you are no longer part of a family. You, you are not that family name any longer. You are part of the Sedai family essentially added to the smackdown yeah yeah it's almost like uh when rand was talking to Egwene about becoming a wisdom under Nynaeve you know no family no husband no kids is that really a life you want for yourself it's a very similar arrangement to be like you know I kind of wonder how you know if that's just something that has percolated out to other parts of the world from the tower that women who are in a position of power give up other commitments. It, well, it, it's almost like she's the village priest compared to the cardinals and the pope yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they, they have the same basic morality, but there's, you know, at different levels or something. 
I don't know. I love how how deep we're getting into the White Tower t- politics with this episode. This is a lot of fun. Uh, the, I, I I find it interesting that this episode, like, no big action pieces happen. No, nothing big and explosive or interesting visually in in that like bombastic way happens in this episode no nothing yet, blows both up this time and last time <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah this At- time and last time it was still the episode that we found the most to talk about <laughs> At action in the michael bay sense like if you like political yeah. intrigue there's a mm-hmm. lot of action in oh, this yeah. episode oh, yeah. so <laughs> Um, so then they move on and, uh, they, they start talking about, uh, the, the prophecies of the dragon and Swan says the prophecies are clear and Moraine says the prophecies are 3000 years old and we've been playing telephone with it with various Aes Sedai retranslating it every couple hundred years. How do we, the, the prophecies are different in every other town out there. How do we know that what we're what we think is correct is correct. Um, and then Swan moves on to say she's been having dreams of the Dark One at the Eye of the World. It's been every night, and she says that she thinks that he's weak right now, and we need to strike while he's weak. Somebody sent his lies to her. Obviously, I think now uh, this is adding to this whole concept that he wanted them there to break that seal. So we think that it, it is uh, Ishamael sending his I, dreams to I Swan. I definitely oh, yeah. do, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And she she was out in the world, so if if he can't reach Tarvalon with his influence, he certainly could have reached her while she was out in the countryside visiting these other cities. I would say if it's a distance situation, Tarvalon is closer to him than than the kids were when they were in Emmons Field. So, yeah. and it may not be a distance thing, but yeah, yeah, might, yeah, maybe it's a line of sight. I don't know. I don't know if we're <laughs> if we're working with infrared or Wi-Fi here. You know, it's he's got a satellite network. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So then Moraine says, uh, "Well, you have to exile me, or Mygan's going to stick me on desk duty, and that is not going to work for what we're trying to accomplish at all." So. Swan agrees to it, but doesn't really like it. It's a heartbreaking scene. <laughs> I thought we'd have more time. I thought we had more time. We always think that. <laughs> My heart. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I think Swan knows. Like, well, first, my first thought was like, ah, does anyone feel like they're suddenly in a rush in a way they weren't before? Like, obviously, Moraine was hustling to get the kids to the tower, but it was. I kind of got the impression that she was like, okay, they're at the tower. Now we can breathe. And then Suan dumps this information on her. And then it's like, oh, God, we have to hustle. And the second thing I noticed was how Suan, like, like, yeah, she says, I thought we had more time. And I'm thinking, oh, more time together here. But I think, like, I was like, maybe she means more time, like, at all because yes i just i just realized that like if, yeah like i think suan's like legitimately telling her goodbye <laughs> yeah forever because oh well Suwan knows she's sending her to the eye of the world like this may be the last time they see each other period and suan's like at you least know, in this turning of the wheel right because she says in this world or the next life how and... dare you Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Oh God, I was already broke. <laughs> How dare you, people? It <laughs> just, just barely dawned on me. I'm like, wait yeah, a no, minute. I, she's go- she's going to this moment. place where she expects to die. And yeah, so, so like, Moraine's figured it out. And 
and maybe I didn't catch on to this the first time because they're speaking in code, but I was, Moraine's like, well, whoever goes with them, you know, stands between the dark one and the dragon dies. And Suwan like gets this look on her face and like, I can see the, like the things clicking, the cogs moving. And then she's like, I, you know, I thought we had more time. And I was like, oh, oh, this is a funeral procession. The timing of their marriage vows makes a lot more sense Mm -hmm. because they didn't have time to plan it out and say, this is when we want to actually do this thing. We have to do this right now because this may be our last chance. Yeah. Oh, wow. I have to go and sob in the corner for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, so then our next day, um, we have Lan showing up and he says, I put him in your chambers. Uh, Matt's probably out drinking somewhere uh, and, and the rest of them know what to do. Him I, in this situation, I believe, is referring to Loyal, uh, as we find out. Um, and then Leandrin shows up and, and cuts him off in the hallway and starts questioning them about the, the kids from Emmons Field. Uh, sorry, the kids from the two rivers, and seems to know a lot more about them than she really should. This is what proves that Leandra would be a terrible blue, because she's good at the spy network part, but she doesn't know how to use the information that she gets. She uses it to dig at Moraine, and then Moraine turns around and says, yeah, I have secrets too, and I'm going to use one now <laughs> to get you to fuck off <laughs> and keep your mouth shut. Yeah, she was at the end of her rope. <laughs> but but she knows she knows when to play that card. She knows when to use the information she has. Rosalie Andrin just uses it to say, look what I can do. I, I know your secrets. And I'll bet it's all that she knows, too. Like, she explodes all of it all at once and says everything she knows about every single one of them right in that moment. Yeah. Without reserving any of it. She doesn't hold anything back from when it would actually be useful. Whereas Moraine is like, I know one secret. Here it is. She's going through her mental Rolodex. Like, which one do I use? (laughs) So, yeah, Moraine uh, gets through her Rolodex and finds the man in North Harbor and says, uh, walk away. Just just walk away. And and Leandrin takes her at her word and walks away. And then she she goes to her quarters and meets with Loyal on the balcony, um, and get we get the the full formal greeting between Isai and and Ogier here, which is beautiful and very wordy. And uh, then she says, uh, "I'm I'm sorry about being so hasty, but uh, can you read subway maps?" <laughs> <laughs> then we we switch back over to the hall of the tower where Egwene and Nynaeve reunite. Um, right there in front of the the actual seat, the Amerlin seat, the chair. I think it should be called the Amerlin chair if it's the chair. That that that, that would make that, it less confusing. <laughs> yeah, that makes more sense. The Amerlin seat is like the Amerlin's badonkadonk, right? <laughs> yeah. Egwene and Nynaeve uh, have have their tearful, wonderful reun- reunification, and then they go in to meet with Swan. And and I love when they first walk in, Moraine bows as she is supposed to before the the Amerlin. <laughs> and Egwene co- tries to copy her bow. And, and then... Uh, My is difficult. <laughs> 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 the Amerlin says, 
tries to say, look, you guys really should join us. We can teach you a lot. We, 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 we have what you need. You have a lot of what we need also. So, you know, join us and, and we'll work well together. And I need just like, no, uh, -uh. no. <sighs> My name is Scorpio. I yeah, mean, difficult Scorpio, for no reason. Uh, Aries moon. Oh my god. Yeah. Her birth chart was the easiest to put together in my mind. Like, the easiest. <laughs> I, I just still love the interaction when uh, Moraine mentions that they have the most powerful channeler that they've ever seen with them, but doesn't mention a name. And, and, uh, Nynaeve knows, up. but Egwene does this whole thing yeah. of, oh, who, me? And then looks over yeah. at Nynaeve, and Nynaeve's like, mm. <laughs> I felt, oh, I got, I had strong secondhand embarrassment. Like, oh, because I've been there. <laughs> I, 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 I. So then Swan, to convince Nynaeve, is saying, look, the last battle is coming. We need as many people on the side of the light as we can get. What all of us want out of life right now is completely unimportant compared to the fact that the last battle is coming. You're going to be in that battle whether you like it or not. It's just, are you going to be with other people by your side or are you going to wait until they come for you? And are you going to be able to actually use your power without, you know, someone dying in front of you you care about? So then we we go back to the Hall of the Tower, presumably sometime later, and uh, we have the most... Uh, Tense marriage ceremony in history, perhaps? Perhaps. Looking at it now and just knowing full well that it is a marriage and being able to watch it with that in mind, is, is it, it is so beautiful. It really, really is. It just, the, the camera focusing on the finger movements and, and the light. And the tears. The light touching and the tears, yeah. I noticed that at some point, Maureen lowers her voice and then she, you know, enunciates and projects again for, and I was like, oh, you know, at first I'm like, oh, she's overcome. And yes, she is overcome. But I think part of it, like, was she made sure that she could only be heard by Swan, like just for them. And then when she, you know, raises her voice again, that's like, oh, yeah, you guys can see whatever you need to see and draw your own conclusions about it. Yeah, the part where she says, you know, clever as a pike, strong as the tides, where she repeats her uh, Swan's father's words, that's very soft. This is between you and me. And then she raises the volume for the part where, you know, um, lest my soul be cast into darkness or whatever the hell the, the repercussions are. That oath that she takes, by the light of my hope of salvation and rebirth, uh, is like the strongest oath somebody can can make in this world. And it's basically what they are swearing an oath on is not just my life, but all of my future lives. Like if I break this oath, then I am breaking that, you know, I am I am an oath breaker for all of my future lives. Which is, yeah, that's a big deal if uh, regeneration is kind of like a central belief mm. that you have. What a terrible thing to do to your future lives to to break one of those oaths. Yeah. So so that's like that's that's like a double super pinky swear. So then uh after Moraine walks out of the tower with everybody turning their backs on her, um Alana turning her back the very last, which was also kind of heartbreaking. 
They do that thing with the sound again, too, where it goes dead quiet. You can just hear her heels yeah. on the floor. Really effective use of sound for just adding to the emotional impact. Uh, there's something about turning, having a whole assembly turn their backs on somebody. I, I get got that same feeling in uh, Next Gen when Worf gets his discommendation ceremony. And it's the exact same thing. Everybody in the, the hall turns around and throws their back at him. And just it's very intense. So then we have Moraine galloping on Aldeeb. Um, out across some plains outside of Tarvalon, and she gallops up to the waygate where uh, Loyal is waiting, and uh, the rest of the group all show up one by one, uh, land dragging the dumbass twins with him. Um, <laughs> oh, they're just so head empty. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you put it well. They have one brain cell to share between them, and only they one do. of them can have it at a time. Yeah. <laughs> it's floating in between them. They don't even use that one brain cell. <laughs> I like that when Matt hugs Perrin, he goes, You look like shit. And I'm not, I'm like, Matt, <laughs> one to talk here. Then, of course, they, they all get up and go into the way gate, and, and Matt stays behind which makes a whole lot more sense now that we know that's because the actor is changing not because that was in the script you know like because that felt really weird yeah at yeah. the time he's a he's an asshole but i don't think he's that big of an asshole from a character standpoint him standing outside the way gate while they're all yelling at him to come in was just some b-roll that they took from that day of filming and and <laughs> Had to film the rest of them just like, Matt, Matt, come here, and then show some B-roll of Matt like. <laughs> yeah, he never looks at them. My wife continuously calls him the asshole Matt just in that scene. I think yeah. she probably said it about four or five times while we were watching this episode. <laughs> this is so out of character. Like, Yeah, that's the other thing, because we now know that it, most of his asshole behavior was because of the dagger. like, And that's him acting out of character which the on the first time I watched through it was much less clear because we didn't really know the character as well. But when you see the whole thing, you know, and, and have that context, it's like, oh, okay. You know, he is, he is definitely not an asshole. He is probably has like the, he's probably the most empathetic of the group. Yeah. When you sit down, when you sit down and really think about it, he sh I agree with that. Yeah, he's the one who's always there first for his friends. He's the one who always notices that something's wrong, and he's there to to ask them. Yeah, and I think you would you would only do that kind of move out of fear, and Matt doesn't seem to be any kind of driven by fear. I I could see um, like coming up with some in story explanations for it, like um, you know after his experience with the dagger, now he doesn't trust himself. Or, you know, this big bad is coming. Now I really need to get back to my sisters because I'm not the dragon, so I can't help. But at least I can help protect them. I mean, he might still just have a Moshadar hangover for all we know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Possible. Good old I mean, PTSD. You know, he, he's been under the influence of this thing for over a month at this point. And, and now all of a sudden, you know, two days after it's been pulled out of him, he's supposed to be just fine. Yeah. I, I think that especially after now just barely rediscovering all of the other friends that he'd lost for so many months, that that camaraderie would definitely overpower his desire to get back to his sisters. Otherwise, he probably Maybe. wouldn't have left the two rivers to begin with. 
Mashidara's been telling him that his friends are dead, too, for the last month. Well, I, I could see another thing of, you know, you just got done dealing with some horrible thing that was eating you alive from the inside that you got inside this spooky city, and then somebody opens a gateway to another spooky <laughs> yeah. area, and you're like, nope. You're like, enough. It's somebody else's turn to get infected with, you know, forces of unstoppable evil. <laughs> I'm exactly. Yeah. One thing I did notice this time, um, as we noticed in, in one of the previous episodes, Bella was still there when um, Moraine and Lan and Nynaeve met up with the Aes Sedai in, with Loghain. Uh, Nynaeve was riding on Bella at that point. At least I'm going to insist that that was Bella. So that would tell me that Bella made it all the way to Tarvalon. So as they were riding out here, I'm going to assume that Bella was still with them again. So as they sent all the horses back to Tarvalon, I know that Mandarv and Aldeeb are smart enough to go straight to the Tarvalon stables. And I know Bella's smart enough that even if the other horses aren't, she's going to follow Mandarv and Aldeeb. I mean, she's going to take them there. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. she's going to be the one leading yeah. them, really. Yeah. yeah. Now, now we need some uh, screen capture uh, comparisons to find out who was riding Bella in yeah. that scene. Now, because I'm interested. Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess probably Egwene or Nynaeve, but probably Egwene because Egwene is is the one who generally rides Bella the most. Yeah, in in my head canon now, Bella is is patiently waiting in the Tarvalon stables for for somebody to come back and and claim her. Cool, makes sense to me. Or for the uh, last battle. <laughs> I mean, as, as the dragon, she has to be there waiting, right? She knows they're not going to make it this time. She's like, yeah, you guys, you guys go do your thing. Let feel special. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll take care of it all later. Any other thoughts in relation to this episode, uh, Samaria? I know you have so many thoughts and feels. <laughs> um, other than like having to snap myself out of a stupor every time Swan's on screen. Um, <laughs> so my question there is: Are you in love with Swan, or you do you want to be Swan, or is it? Yes. yes. Is that an or question? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, very, it's a very common bisexual conundrum. You oh, know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I understand completely. And then there's the wanting her wardrobe as well. Yes. Well, well, that's like me and desire in Sandman. It's like, do I want desire or do I want to be desire? The answer is yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> mm, any other thoughts? Not particularly. Honestly, I think I spewed them all as we went along. But um, I think this is definitely my favorite episode. Um, I was paying attention a lot to the colors that Egwene was wearing. Like, I know last time we did this, we mentioned that Nynaeve is often in yellow and green and how mm -hmm. that's kind of like a nod um, to what her Aja may or may not be. And Egwene wears blue. She wears blue. Like, we... um. When she's with the Tuatuan, she's in pink, which is a very common pink color, like colors, like, but I can't see her as a red um, yeah. at all. Um, but she wears blue and I, I very part, like very specifically, like she gets a lot of wardrobe changes in this show, which I also noticed going on. She might like other than Maureen, when Maureen finally gets to the tower, Egwene is the only one we really see in different clothes. And here she puts on blue. Um, and I was like, well, I don't know if they come from the city because they're very Two Rivers-esque. But then again, if Tarvalon is in, is 
you know, a cosmopolitan kind of city. There's no reason why she can't find something new. And she's in blue. And do I see Egwene as a blue? Maybe. I don't not see her as one. So yeah. we'll see. She's smart enough. She is smart enough. There's there's definitely a, a yellow thing going on with Nynaeve, though. Like that that scene where Moraine's spying them on them from across the, the way. It took me a minute to realize that was Nynaeve and not some other yellow sister that was following uh Loyal. <laughs> yeah, I I think after hearing about what she did for her first time channeling, the yellows are just gonna be like hands off. Yep, she's ours done. Off. <laughs> but on the other hand she seems kind of feisty enough that i could see green i mean we saw in the trailer Nynaeve practicing with in the with the other warders in the tower practicing her fighting so she's gonna be able to defend herself no matter what aja she ends up with I mean, I would venture to say that she's already able to defend herself no matter what Hodge she's doing. Certainly from Trollocs. <laughs> she has that warrior personality, too. Yeah. The sweetness of a healer is is not as much there. She has the capability yeah, of it. Yeah, she doesn't have the bedside manner. Yeah. Yep, yep. I don't know. You saw her interactions with Stepan were very caring. Sure. I think she has the capability of it, but it... I think she has to flip the switch to... She can be Patch Adams if she wants, but most of the time she's Gregory House. She has to work at it to be that. If she's just being natural, she, that warrior personality is going to take over every time. Like, honestly, I think if anybody else had introduced her, she might like being a red. Like, the camaraderie, the having that very uh, set, clearly defined group of people always surrounding her. Uh, you know, Leandrin is so harsh, and their personalities <laughs> clash so badly that I can see, and clearly Nynaeve only needs to meet one person to, like, make a blanket judgment call about everything. Like, she's not, she's not intuitively, naturally the kind of person who will be like, okay, well, that's just one version of it. I'm going to see for myself what gives. She's like, nope, I met, I met this thing in this context and that is true forever for me which is very much a cop mentality so that does tie in with her being a natural fit for reds <laughs> <laughs> like she would make a very good red it, and you know she has it, she has a natural distrust of men like outside of her family like i like the whole thing with her wanting to bring in Egwene as a wisdom and Egwene's like, well, but I have brand. I have other options. And Nynaeve's like, you do? <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not necessarily she doesn't love Rand and Matt and Perrin. It's like, I don't think she registers them as men. She doesn't register them as valid options. <laughs> right. Versus, like, I like I guess she could she would make a beautiful green, but also green have two waters. And, like, she gets along with waters. But only when they're not connected to like the Aes Sedai. And it's it's her 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 relationship to men just seems very nuanced in that way. And I <laughs> I don't I don't know how she would do if like she had her own water waters and like she had to like admit that they were men. Oh, what is necessarily men? 
Like, do we just have to uh, be men? Warders are all men. Okay. So now I want to see the the mini short, the animated one of every recruiter from every Aja trying to get uh, at one novice in the tower. <laughs> from from any error, it doesn't matter. Just the the recruiting department of every single Aja and their spiel to one separate uh, novice or accepted. Yeah, she's a five star recruit. Got to send, send the best of the university coaching departments. Well, it really depends on which Aja has the first round draft pick this year. Which Aja has the most NIL money. <laughs> and that's all we have time for today. We want to say thank you, as always, to Michael and Jen out of the Secret Watch Party Island headquarters. Thank you, Michael and Jen. Hey, thank thanks. you, Michael Bye. and Jen. And if you want to listen to all the other fun Watch Party podcasts, you can check those out on all of the major podcasting platforms. We've got Watch Party Lord of the Rings. That's uh, Michael and Jen's podcast. We've got Watch Party of Ice and Fire covering the works of George R.R. R. Martin. We've got, of course, Watch Party Wheel of Time that you're listening to right now. And soon, Watch Party Gaiman covering the Yay. works of Neil Gaiman. And, of course, if you want to get in contact with us, you can do that, whatwatchparty at gmail.com. Send us uh, some letters. Speaking of which, we actually have a letter. Wow. Yay. So, I think we need to do the mailbag song. Mailbag. Mailbag. Yeah, it, it doesn't work as well when Samaria's not here. she's got to be here to finish it off and do the Samaria carries the rest of the group it's like she's Beyonce and the rest of y'all are are the rest of uh, what was that she's Gladys we're the pips no no, you can't disrespect Destiny's child like that (laughs) (laughs) Kelly and Michelle are important so mailbag our friend Alan who uh, wrote into us recently saying that uh, he was working his way through through all of our episodes and, and uh, was on, like, episode 20 or something at the time. Uh, well, Alan just finished. Oh, wow. Oh, That's a dedication. Wow. We are okay. that bingeable. Nice. That is yeah, a you, And he goes on to say here, he does have a bit of an addictive personality, so when he finds something enjoyable, uh, he'll dive right in. He says, going back now through previous episodes since my last message, he says he learned so much with the diversity and inclusion episodes and the femme perspective episode which uh, really opened his mind. Uh, he said the only fan perspective he usually gets is his wife and her friends, his mom and his sister, you know, small town life. So that was uh, uh, especially eye-opening for him, uh, which which is part of the reason why I, I put those episodes together. I, I, I feel like being able to see through each other's eyes helps to create compassion. And that's something that I always try to do and, and try to support. So anybody else have something to say there? I mean, Back me up. <laughs> thanks for listening, especially that far. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed being part of those episodes immensely. Um, I'm glad they could edify someone else and, you know, not just, not just myself. Same here. Those, those were, um, educational for me. I was going to say educational for us as well, but certainly speaking for myself, they were for me just being able to hear other people's perspectives on things means a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He goes on to say uh, the mental health episode, he actually had to listen to at home uh, because it was a bit heavy to listen to while at work, which I completely understand that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, 
he said it was a heavy episode, but he, he wants to thank all of us for sharing because it really did help uh, him him to deal with some of his own issues. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So all the character deep dives are amazing to hear from the panelists having only seen the show and him knowing of them from the books. And and this is the thing I've heard from so many people is when we do those deep dives, y'all know these characters. They're the same characters we've known and loved for years, and and you're finding them. It, it's it's amazing. It's it really is. It it so many people who have listened to y'all's responses to the show have changed their opinion on the show because of it. Yay! Uh, I, I was just about to say that uh, for me, that's a big shout out to Rafe and the writers and the actors, especially yeah. of the show, because in that medium, we would not be able to articulate that if they had not delivered those character traits to us in, in the short amount of FaceTime and, and interaction that we have with them. I think, I think it really speaks to the fact that the people who are involved in creating the show obviously love the books and love the characters. So yep. I know that there's some pushback about the fact that the, the there have been plot changes to make it more watchable, but I think like the soul of the characters and the, the, the themes of the books, we wouldn't be picking them up if they weren't there. Uh, ultimately, that's the most important thing because you, you can never one-for-one a adaptation even if you tried to do that it would still fall flat on its face and you wouldn't succeed so you you have to get that that core and if you don't have it then you're gonna ultimately probably have a bad adaptation yeah i've I've said it before if they tried to do a one-to-one adaptation of the books like this first season only being eight hours long they would have probably not even left the two rivers in that time you know it it there a one to one is not possible you end up with these tenders <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to say uh the myth and religion episodes were some of his favorites he says he was raised jewish but was born christian with his parents having converted when he was young um they also both have phd's and are major science nerds so he quickly fell towards atheism which uh where i landed as well um, I really enjoy learning about other religions and perspectives. Having such a scientific mind, though, I don't think I'll ever believe in any of them, which I, I understand as well. I, I, I find them culturally interesting, but, but uh, my beliefs don't land anywhere near the, any of them. That is fair. That is <laughs> very fair. Also, I just find it fascinating how people can get the same information and just go in different directions. Like. Yeah. Like like the Abrahamic religions, for instance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, a fa- it's a family reunion this past week, you know, Passover, Ramadan, and Easter happening all on the same week, which apparently only happens three times a century. So, Oh, oh wow. Oh, hey, yeah. hey. Um, it's like a super holiday. It's a family <laughs> reunion. Um, yeah. But, like, I love astronomy, but, ast- like, I see astronomy and just how things expand and die and rebirth, and I'm like... <gasps> God, <laughs> like one doesn't take away from the other for me, but it make it it also makes perfect logical sense where you where someone else sees that and goes, yeah, no, that's that's it. Yeah. So, yeah, that was also a good episode. I agree. That was that was a good time for me. Yeah, made me want to study more. I gotta tell you, I, know, I was like, 
Damn, There's I need to so go back to reading books. No, <laughs> felt, felt so <laughs> narrow in those ones. That's yeah. for sure. There's so I, much I, I don't know. I have know. to say, I find it very interesting that as much of an atheist as I am, how much I know about religion just culturally and, and from the, the storytelling perspective. And if anybody would have told me years ago that I would have been on a podcast with, you know, devout Christians and, and Muslims and, and blah, 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 you know, people believing in, in astral astrology and, and all kinds of other stuff. And, and I would have been like, what? <laughs> and, I even yeah. have in common with those people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I love hearing this, the different storytelling from every different culture and, and seeing where those stories overlap even, you know, that I, I love seeing the development of human culture as told through those stories. It's, it's just fascinating to me. You know, it, I, you don't have to believe in religion for religion to still be fascinating. Yes. That's how I've, I've always felt. Anyway, uh, Alan says he's, he's, uh, really looking forward to season two and wondering what's going on. And you know, uh, you're not alone all? in that. Okay. <laughs> season two, we we'll come all? back from war. So, Starting to get a little worried, honestly, with all the cutbacks that streaming services are doing. I'm going to say that this is fairly typical for Amazon. They tend to keep their card cards close to their chest until about two months before something comes out. And then they go on a massive marketing blitz. Oh, Jay is telling us that season three is about to start filming. So, so yeah. they haven't cut the budget yet. We know for a fact that uh, Priyanka Bose is in Prague. We're filming uh, that's Alana, um, so we know Alana will be in season three. Alan con uh, concludes by saying, anyways, thank you all for doing this podcast. I really enjoyed it and will continue to enjoy it as you make more. I feel as if I know you all now. I like the term used, para-friends, and, and we like that too. You can, we'll be mm -hmm. your para-friends and you can be ours. Thanks for, thanks for writing in, Alan. Yep. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Alan. Really good to hear from people. Nice meeting you. Um, and Alan has uh, uh, joined our Discord also. If you want to join that Discord, check out in the show notes or go to whatwatchparty.com for all of our uh, connections online, everywhere, anywhere, and somewhere. I have, I don't know. My, my brain is <laughs> fried at this point. This has been a long episode. So... With all of that being said, final question. This one from Jay, once again, watching us live in the chat. Bless Jay. Uh, <laughs> we love Jay's you, Jay. Jay's our secret weapon because, like, we're tapped out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so Jay's final question. Uh, you get to start a new Aja. You are the head of a new Aja. What, what is the color of your Aja and what is its purpose? I have an answer for this because I think the one thing the tower has really fallen down on is their marketing. They need a PR department <laughs> to tell everybody <laughs> that, you know, the, the, that the, uh, the tower is supporting the tower is still in their best interests. And that, of course their color should be pinstripe. <laughs> <laughs> It, it's easy for me. The uh, Aja's obviously need to have an engineering Aja that deals with uh, 
building and the repairing and infrastructure. And of course, they're going to be the orange Aja, so they don't have to, you know, wear vests over there outfits but they're just always wearing their construction yeah they're always wearing their construction like the, the the osha aja, <laughs> osha, osha, osha. <laughs> so your your barge got sunk <laughs> and they, they can partner they can partner with the pinstripes <laughs> they can build railings on the tower says jay <laughs> i was thinking purple because i was like whose color's not taken who's so purple I don't even like purple that much, but that there we go. And similar to Siobhan's, I was like, clearly we need some Aes Sedai living amongst people, like not just for the people's benefit, but the Aes Sedai need to learn how to go outside and touch grass. So they their whole purpose should be living with regular people. That That is their job. So community outreach. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. There you go. The community outreach, Aja. And what would their color be? Purple? Uh-huh. You got it. See, I had very very similar thoughts to Siobhan and Samaric. Because I was thinking, um, partying, propaganda, and public relations, and their color would be purple because it's... Because um, you're alliterating anyway. It, it, exactly, yes. <laughs> because it's the alliterative color. Oh, God, I have to come up with the name. I know, you have I? to come up with one, yep. Oh, um... I am. I'm, I'm going to form the the Sparkle Aja, and the Sparkle Aja is is their entire reason for existence is to uh, explore gender expression and and uh, help others explore their gender expression. Oh, the Sociology like and it. Women's and Genders Resource Center. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can imagine that would not be a very popular group in the. Uh... The, the, the tower needs it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>